Our scripture reading today is from 1 John chapter 2. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Amen. Amen. Uh, hello and welcome once more. As you can see, we're in the sort of the front end of our series here called The Arrival uh, for the month of December. And the reason we're calling it The Arrival is because Christians for centuries have also called the Christmas season by another name. They've called it Advent, which is a word that simply means the coming of or the arrival of. In other words, by calling Christmas the Advent, Christians have said that something has arrived at Christmas. And so each week, from each chapter of this letter we now call 1 John, the writer John, who is an eyewitness to the life of Jesus Christ, he's going to be showing something to us that he is saying has arrived at Christmas with Jesus. And so to see here what John here in chapter 2 today is saying has arrived with Jesus, I want to, just for a moment, I want to take us all back in time for a moment. Take us back to a place that for almost all of us, uh, you know, if, that, if this was you, uh, you've been at some point in your lives. And for most of us, uh, that place was a place in your past. For a handful of us, it may be a place in our present. Maybe for fewer of us, it's a place in our future. But for all of us, whether it was in your past or it is your present or it might be your future, that place is a place that for all of us probably has some strong emotions associated with it, some memories, strong memories, some feelings, maybe great, some not so great. And that place, here it is, I'm going to show it to you. That place is this place, the high school cafeteria. 
the high school cafeteria. And, you know, of course, when you see that, you probably, probably all have different reactions to seeing that because for some of us, you see it and you laughed. For some of it, you stared blankly. You thought, I'm never going back there, you know. Some of you had some, like, borderline, maybe negative, emotional flashbacks of that place because it was so painful. Or maybe some of you are feeling kind of awkward now because that place is yours place most days these days. But do you remember, that was my question, do you remember what it was like to walk into that place and what it was like? Now, I'm not talking about all those amazing high school cafeteria smells. I'm talking about what it was like to walk into a room full of people and try to figure out where you sit and where you belong. Now, for some of us, maybe in our past, when we walked into that cafeteria, the choice was maybe even already made for us where we would sit. Because for some of us, the choice was already made in our school or our neighborhood or our city based upon the color of our skin. And so when we came in, that, that group sat there, or that group sat there at that table. Or for some of us, the choice was made already based on how smart we were. And like the smart kids sat over there and the not so great students were over there. Or the athletes sat over there and maybe you wanted to join them, but you couldn't because you didn't make the team. Or maybe the rich kids sat over there, the popular kids sat over there and you couldn't join them because you didn't dress nice or have a nice enough car and you didn't fit in. So You sat by yourself, maybe. Maybe some of you were even all alone. Now, think about that. Think about that place. Think about how that all felt. And looking back on it now, looking back on it, how ridiculous was it that people were separated like that? Come on, it was ridiculous, right? How crazy. Looking back, how not important was it to make distinctions among people like that based upon things like class or dress or appearance or skin color, you know, whether you were a skater punk or a jock, about all those labels, a goth, right, or a band person or whatever. I mean, looking back, for those of you who never walk into that place anymore and you're thinking, yeah, you're right, thank God for that, you know, doesn't it seem so silly, so unimportant, maybe even hurtful to separate people by class and appearance? Yeah. Now, isn't it a good thing that we all grew up and don't do that anymore? Isn't it a good thing we all matured and we learned our lesson and just got along? Oh, the truth is, of course, we still do things like that, don't we? A generation ago, 1976, in the year that Jimmy Carter won the presidential election, like four of you in here old enough to remember that. Anyway, uh, only 25% of Americans lived in a county where the candidate who won that county won that county in a landslide. Now, in this past election, that number went from 25, it's been going up for a while, all the way to 60%. Now, 60% of Americans live in a county where that candidate who won that county won it by a landslide, and more more than 50% live in a county where that candidate won it by a super landslide, which means this, few implications. That means even as our country, as our nation gets more and more diverse, we're becoming more and more polarized. More and more polarized. The country is becoming, at the same time, more conservative and more liberal. So when you read the news or you study culture and you think, man, this country is becoming more and more liberal, it is. Or if you feel like when you watch the news or you watch culture that it's becoming more and more conservative, it is. 
both at the same time. Even as we become more ethnically diverse, we're becoming more and more polarized around what we think, which for a number of us drives perhaps where we live, and for many Christians then drives where they go to church or they worship. Now, there are many reasons, of course, people live where they live, many reasons why their churches look the way they do in terms of race or income status or political leaning. And some of those are good reasons. Some of those are valuable reasons. Some of those are meaningful reasons, God-led reasons. And some of those reasons, though, are actually bad reasons. Perhaps they're negative reasons created by discriminatory zoning or race-based housing, which our nation has a sordid history of doing. So there are legitimate factors for all of this. But here's my question, whether good reasons or bad reasons. Here's my question today. Is that the way we want it to be? Is that the way we want it to be? Are we satisfied with the way things are? Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're just sort of coming in and you're kicking tires and you're wondering what we're all about and you're poking your head in. If that's you, let me tell you, for the next little bit, you can just sort of listen in. Not really for you. But this next part, for those of us who would call ourselves Christians, this next part is so important to get. And for those of us who are Christians, the writer here of this letter that you just heard, John, who again was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus Christ, and the writer of the letter we call 1 John, has this to say to people who would follow Jesus as well. Because, before I show it to you, let me set it up here. Lots of people in John's day were asking this question. John, what does it really look like to follow Jesus? What's at the core of it? John, you were there. You were one of the first group of people to ever hear Jesus, to touch Jesus, to befriend Jesus. You were a part of that first group to know him. So what does it really mean? Because, John, there are more and more people today who claim to follow Jesus, but they don't really look like it. So, John, how does a person know? They are really following Jesus. How do they know they know God? And so John now, as he writes this, he's an old man. He's in the last few years of his life, and he's likely all alone because all of his friends have gone on to die. They've all been martyred for their claim that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so John, thinking about what he would leave behind, picks up his pen, and he writes this. He says, by this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Which, of course, begs the question, some of you probably are already there, well, how did Jesus walk? That's what John's talking about. When Jesus literally, it could be figuratively too, or let's, let's take it literally, when he literally walked around on planet Earth, what did that look like? Another way of putting it would be, when Jesus Christ came to the earth, when God became human in the person of Jesus, as Christians have claimed, who would he eat with at his lunch table? Who would he eat with? Would Jesus show us a God like all the other gods of all the other nations who only favored those like them, who who approved of those just like them? Would he be like that, or would he show us something else? No, Jesus showed us a God who walked with, who sat with people dramatically unlike him, people like Matthew, a rich tax collector, who was a betrayer of his own people, but who would go and sit with, eat with, go to the table of a person like Matthew. I mean, shouldn't those who do shady business and who profit off other people's pain, don't they deserve to sit by themselves? 
And Jesus showed us a God who walked with people like Simon the Zealot, who was a Jewish nationalist, who prized his nation, his ethnic group, put his religion first. But why would Jesus get involved with the life of a nationalist like Simon, who actually advocated doing violence to ethnic groups, not like his own? I mean, shouldn't people who believe that deserve to sit by themselves? Jesus showed us a God who walked with scandalous women like Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons, the Bible says, and had a reputation to match that, to prove it. He showed us a God who walked with, who touched the leper and the outcast. But who would literally touch lepers? I mean, surely everyone knew lepers were cursed by God. Shouldn't they deserve to sit by themselves But Jesus showed us a God who walked with them, who walked with the blind. But why would he spend time with the blind? Not just able-bodied people. Didn't they know? Didn't Jesus know that the blind were people who who had some fault of theirs and involving their blindness? It was their fault or their parents. I mean, surely they deserve to sit by themselves. And, but Jesus showed us a God who walked with, who sat with people like Simon the Pharisee, uh, who, who hey, Jesus ate in the home of the very one who insulted him to his face and behind his back and who would later betray him to his own death. I mean, Jesus, surely a person like that deserves to sit and eat alone. Hmm. But not if you're Jesus and you came to show the world what God is like and who God is would eat with, and who God loves. Do we walk? Do we walk like Jesus? John says we can know, in a way, if we're truly in him, if we don't just sit at the tables of those who are just like us all the time. But John, you know what, John, okay, okay, great, Jesus walked like that, but what can help us do that, John? I mean, what did Jesus have? Did he, like, give you something, John, to help us do that? Oh, John goes on, and he says this in verse 7. He says, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you. John's saying, what can help us walk like Jesus is this one thing. It's this new command that Jesus gave us. And in a way, he's saying it's not new because it's been around since the beginnings of Christianity several decades before this was written. But in a way, John's saying it is new because no one else had taught like this and thought like this and acted like this and walked like this. No one had ever had the guts or the right to give a new commandment since the days of Moses, but Jesus did. So that commandment was old for some in John's day, but new for others And so John, for all of them, and for us, is referencing these words that Jesus spoke to him in the company of the other disciples many years before. John chapter 13, Jesus said this, A new, here's the word, commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that's the commandment John's referring to here. Now, now, now you're saying, well, okay, all right, qualify this, here we go. All right, that doesn't mean we don't call what sin, sin. That doesn't mean we don't critique what must be critiqued in church or in culture. That doesn't mean we don't confront things. Love, it doesn't mean we don't call things out because we should and we must, but here's the point. You can't actually do that in a person's life and have it create change 
until the other person knows you're doing it from a place of love. So church, for us to look like this, to walk like that, for us to know if we're really in Jesus, John is saying, in a way, you're going to have to prove it. You're going to have to prove it by how you walk to know you're in Jesus. If you're a church or a person that really gets the gospel, the good news he came to bring to, for us to know if we really know him, John's saying you're going to have to prove it by how we walk. That may just look like who is at our table. Who's at our table? Therefore, what's arrived with Jesus, he's saying, is a new foundation for all our relationships. What Jesus brought into the world was a, a brand new way of relating to other people. What's arrived with him, he's saying, is a brand new table for all peoples to come and be a part of. Now, Jesus did not say, he didn't say this, he didn't say, all people will know you're my disciples when you all vote alike. Like four of you left, that's cool. It's still true. He did not say all people will know you're my disciples when you all dress alike, and thank God for that. You know, or you agree on what style of worship you like, although I'd hope we'd all agree that our worship team here is amazing. No, uh, but listen, all people, he said, will know you're my disciples when you love one another. That's the new foundation for our relationships, the new table we all gather around. This is saying here we don't gather around only the tables of our appearance, only the tables of our politics, only the tables of our money or our financial or our marital status or for what you can do for me or I can do for you. But we gather around the table of the commandment of our risen Lord and God and King to love one another. When I really committed my life to Christ at the age of 19. It was like, two, was it three years ago, Pastor Barnabas? Can't remember, like three years ago? I think, yeah. <clears throat> the jokes aren't getting any better, so just so you'll know, it just, it's all you get. But I was born again into this multi-ethnic, multiracial environment, diverse environment, and soon after that, I was arm-twisted into moving into this house with these other men from this campus ministry I was a part of. And it was this really d different group of people, these strange people called Christians. Yeah. Anyway, there was this party guy from Sri Lanka. There was this percussion guy getting his master's degree uh, in percussion performance. What do you do with a master's degree in percussion performance? I don't know, whatever it was. He did it. All I know is he kept a beat everywhere he went on every flat surface. But uh, in particular, there was this African-American guy who, because of legitimate pain in his past, from real racial trauma he'd experienced from people who looked a lot like me, he had a hard time with people who looked like me. And he really didn't like athletes, which I was as well. So there were a couple of strikes against me at least in his mind, going into the relationship. But this guy, he had to be like both the strangest guy I'd ever met, uh, but he was also the most spiritually sensitive guy I'd ever met because he had this uh, table in a corner of his room where he would go in and he would pray and he had it set up and it had like a black tablecloth on it with candles he would light and incense he would burn and decorations, you know, he'd put on it. And one day I had a number of these freshman athletes who would come to Christ, big football players, and they came over to my house and I was walking them through and introducing them to my roommates and that particular guy wasn't home, but I took him in there, and they saw his room, and when these other athletes began to walk into his room, they began to make fun of it. When they saw his little shrine, they said, what is it, like a shrine? You know, what's he doing, incense? Like, is he going to sacrifice something there? What a weirdo, 
basically. Yeah. And uh, uh, just maybe half an hour later, that roommate got home. My roommate got home. He walked through the house into his room. We saw him go in there, shut the door, and we heard him sniff. He began to sniff from the other room. He comes back out, comes into the living room, and in front of all of us, in true story, he says this. He says, who has been in my room? It smells like mockery in there. <laughs> oh, God, those guys never mess with him again. That's for, that's for sure. They never even went in his room. Now, of course... He was, he was an odd dude, but over the course of our years living together, he was the first one really with the courage to break into my all white world of things like race uh, and class and words like privilege and all my assumptions about those things. What table I sat at, who I ate with all the time and why. And it was so hard and painful, but I grew to love him because he loved, I saw the same Jesus that I did, and relating to him, being a part of that group, growing in that way, it changed my life, formed me, and formed this thesis within me in light of John 2, which I want to talk about for a moment. And here it is. Here's my thesis. Multi-ethnic, multiracial churches have the power to bring healing to our nation. And there's actually some growing proof evidence of that. And let me show you one bit. There's a guy by the name of Michael Emerson, Dr. Emerson's a sociology professor, first at Rice here in Texas, thank you, now at Park University in Chicago. He's done one of the largest investigations on church and race in the country, and here's what he's found, and it's incredible. A little discouraging at first, a little encouraging at the end. Here it is. He says, involvement in multiracial congregations over time, everybody say, over time, leads to fundamental differences. Friendship patterns change. We find that people in multiracial congregations have significantly more friendships across race than do other Americans. For example, for those attending racially homogenous congregations, 83% said that most or all of their friends were the same race as them. For those not attending any congregation, they don't go to church, 70% said most or all their friends were the same race as them. Now, here's what he goes on to say, his implications, and it's tough for a second. He, he points out that homogenous churches can sometimes be a deterrent to social and racial progress. And you ask why? He says, not because anybody ever intends to not love each other, but he points out, like Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is. And when you're involved with a group of people that are your same age or your same income status or level or neighborhood or ethnicity, your treasure is where your heart is. And he just put your treasure into people like you. You care and love and serve those people. And over time, you look up and um, it's not on purpose. No one means to do it. It's just the effect of being only at the same table all the time with those like you. But then he goes on to say, but for those attending multiracial congregations, there is a dramatic difference. Only 36% of people attending racially mixed congregations said most or all their friends were the same race as them. And we found that those 36% were relatively recent arrivals to racially mixed congregations. Indeed, we found that by far the most important factor in people having racially diverse relationships, ready, is whether they attend a racially mixed congregation, church. It's church that makes a difference. Partly due to the greater relationships across race, involvement in multiracial congregations leads to attitudinal change, change toward closing the racial gap and racial attitudes. He concludes this way, the implication for a racially divided but changing nation is clear. In contemporary times, multiracial congregations offer 
promising path forward. Now, that ought to be encouraging to you. I heard like one amen. You think, well, okay. But if that's true, Morgan, why don't more people belong to them or more leaders try starting them? And the answer to that question is the answer I've got here. And the answer I've got is probably the same one that you've got in your mind now, you're thinking about now. And the answer to that question, why don't more people do them or participate, is because, ready, here's my really deep answer, it's hard. (laughs) It's just really hard. A church with any, any level of diversity is hard. A church where there are married and singles and divorced folks and kids and teens is just hard because many times not a lot of it the week that you're there or the month even is geared toward you and your honeycomb of your environment and if you say well no one sees me i'm not appreciated do you know who else feels like that a lot here it is a category of people every parent who's ever lived including your parents of you today because if you always want to feel appreciated Don't try to create family. (laughs) But appreciation is uh, is not the foundation of a family. Love is the foundation of a family, which is why Jesus didn't say appreciate one another. He said love one another. We should appreciate. We should increase that, ramp that up more and more. Thank yous and I see yous and all that. But he said love one another. And especially going on from there, if there is additionally ethnic diversity, which there is here, if you're new and you stick around, let me tell you what's probably going to happen to you, which has already happened to many, many folks here at Mosaic. You, you're going to drive up in the parking lot one Sunday morning. Maybe it happened today. And you're going to notice... A bumper sticker supporting the very cause you think is wrong for the country, the very political candidate whom you could not be paid enough money to vote for, even if it funded all your kids' college education, and whom you're pretty sure is the Antichrist. Right. And right there, before you ever set foot in this place, you're already confused. You're thinking, is this, is this a church? You know, I thought they were like Christians here. And so if that's you, you know, being the mature person, I'm sure that you are, you you shrugged it off and you thought, well, maybe, maybe it's some person who was just lost. They didn't know where they were going. They just wandered in here. It's okay. You said, I'll pray for them. Maybe they'll get saved today. But then after the service, on the way out to the car, you see the person getting in the car and the person in the car with the bumper sticker, you're pretty sure was the deacon that you met earlier or like the community group leader who prayed for you in the middle of the service and before you know maybe it was really that nice usher or greeter you said thank you but before you were confused before church but on the way out now you're you're irritated so so what do you do well you you could say to them you have three options here first you could say well how to their face how can you call yourself a christian and vote for them Or you could say nothing to them, smile, then go home, log on online, and throw massive shade on social media, Facebook, about Christians who refuse to look at the gospel when they vote, implying you obviously have and they have not. Or you could do neither of those options. See, go back to a politically homogenous environment where everybody's going to pat you on the back for your same convictions, which, of course, are all the same as theirs, may or may not be biblical, but you'll never know because you'll never be challenged about them. Now, those three options are frankly easy, take no time, and they actually, I believe, only serve in many cases to further divide our nation. 
But when you see that bumper sticker, you read that post, you read that tweet, and you choose not to fling them, to ignore them, even to retreat. But you dig into something bigger and something larger, way less comfortable than how you grew up or maybe even where you live or what your neighborhood looks like. And you look to get involved maybe in a community group with people different than you. Or you come, not just once, but over time to TGA here, the gospel in where we have these conversations. And then maybe you take that grow class about our nation's history and church's history. And and you begin to ask questions like, well, why are you so upset about this? Or questions like, why aren't you more upset about this? And we begin to listen and listen. Now, over time, now, we can begin to get somewhere. You say, well, Morgan, how's that going to help? Well, to which I would say, because the first three options don't and won't. And second, I would say, because that is in part the solution that the Apostle Paul commands us to take in challenging relational situations. He writes both in Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 8 to groups of racially mixed Christians. He says, here's what you do when it comes time to getting along. When you see like you're right and they're wrong, and he calls one group that's strong and the other one's weak, here's what he says. Here's the solution. Ready? Here we go. Romans 15, he says, accept one another as Christ has accepted you. So the Bible's solution, in part, is a relational one. Now, it's more than that. It's also a structural part. It's also about undoing three centuries of racialized thinking, upgrading where we're missing the mark culturally. But the Bible's solution is more than relational, but it's not less than either. John goes on, verse 9, he says, The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light There's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. Doesn't know where he's going because darkness has blinded his eyes. So I'm saying, how can we get out of darkness as a people or a culture? Come on. We love one another. We walk together as Jesus walked. We have a new foundation for our relationships. Now, when prospective uh, church planners, pastors, when they come up to me, they do from time to time, maybe like somebody in your, your, uh, your area of work comes up to you, for those of you who work, and, you know, like somebody comes up to you and they'll ask you questions, they shop talk, people come up to me and they ask me this question, or they say, you know what, Morgan, I've heard what's happening, and I would really love for our church to be diverse also. And I look at them, seriously, I've done this, and I say, oh, really? And when I begin to share with them, the joys and the pains of what it is we do here and what it costs us sometimes, how it costs us sometimes to be misunderstood because people say, like, you've forgotten Jesus, which is crazy because all we're trying to do is walk like Jesus walked and open up tables for all peoples, right? Or people say we've misunderstood the gospel, which is crazy because all I'm trying to do is make plain Romans 16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for all peoples, Jew and Gentile. Or people say, Morgan, you've just got white guilt. Or Morgan, you think you're a white savior, which, none of which is true, by the way, because I'm nobody's savior. I can't even save my own documents in Microsoft Word. You know, I can't even save time to go to the gym. You know, I can't save people, people groups. No, when I say to them, we don't do this because it's a church growth strategy. We do this because it's a discipleship strategy. And when I say to them, this will not grow your church, but this will complicate it because love is messy and love is complicated, but love is the command. Now, when I say that and I ask them if they want to sign up for that, the look 
and their eye changes. See, Jesus' new kind of table isn't a growth strategy. It's a discipleship strategy to walk like he walked. But here's the thing. I do believe it can turn into a kind of growth. It can bring people to Jesus because Jesus said it would. He said, if you love one another, the world will know you're my disciples. And he goes on to say, if I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And listen, you read the statistics on this, you'll know this. A whole generation of young people has walked away from the church and faith and God and the Bible over not being able to do this, over the churches not being able to do this. And let me tell you something, I want them back. I want the next generation back because maybe, maybe, maybe we can do a little bit better. So how, how do we do that? Where does the power come from to do this? Does it come from looking at fads or trends or programs or certainly that news feed you got going on, right? It comes, let me just propose to you, from keeping at the center of us what brought that first group of believers together that first Christmas morning. Think about it. Who was there that first Christmas morning when Jesus was born? There were shepherds, right? They were economically poor. They were socially outcast. They were religiously unclean. There was Mary, an unwed, pregnant, now, you know, single mom, teenage mother. Joseph, a poor, unsuccessful business person. They were magi who were older, wealthy, highly educated, who were different ethnically than Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. And yes, I know they weren't there that first Christmas night. They weren't there, if you know the story. But they did see the star that night, and it led them to the same one that brought the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and the angels all together. See, in a way, that group of people was the first group of believers in Jesus. They saw him, and you would never have picked that group of people to show up at the same table together with a human baby king in the middle of it. And do you know, when you look at that first nativity, you know what they're all doing? You know, because you got it in your home, some of you. They're all bowing, bowing before Jesus. Rich, poor, young, old, educated, not so much. Different ethnicities in that snapshot, bowing before Jesus. Right from the beginning of the gospel in the world, right from the birth of Jesus, that's what you have. And so, church, when we do that, when we gather around Jesus and Jesus alone, when we remember he was the true light in our darkness, we remember that we used to walk in hatred toward God and toward our brother and our sister. When we remember, though, that he came to show us a different way to walk, and we remember that we were blind and lost on our own, and heaven risked it all and sent a baby who would come one day to die to get us back. Now, now we begin to be a kind of people who create a table which has space for all peoples, space for all peoples. We're not redeemed by more separation. We're not redeemed by more selfishness, polarization, our own preferences, all that. We need a vision beyond ourselves to come to the table with Christ in the center create space for others who will come behind us. Not about me, not even about you. It's about the generation that's to come. And I believe when we love one another, we can do that. We make space for others who can come and be seated as well.